1: I am delighted you're joining me for the 10th episode of Our Voices, a monthly feature designed to give you an inside view of my guests' life journey and what's shaped them. We'll discuss ways to accelerate social change that levels the playing field and helps everyone live to their full potential. I invite you to listen with curiosity and without judgment. I hope in hearing different experiences of what it means to grow up, go to school, struggle, work and live in our world that you'll gain greater empathetic understanding of people you may not otherwise encounter. And perhaps in ways unexpected, you'll also see a bit of yourself in these journeys and embrace we're more similar than not. I couldn't be happier about my special guest, a close family friend who I've known since my childhood days in upstate New York. She's brilliant and an inspiring example of finding and following one's true north. Her first career was in the art world. Having master's and bachelor's degrees in art history, she made her way to the prestigious art galleries in New York, Monaco, and San Francisco, the Guggenheim Museum, and the Ansel Adams Center for Photography. For reasons we'll hear about, she changed gears and became employee number two at design firm Turner Duckworth. From the ground floor, she worked across many functions, helping to create an industry leader that's creating design for some of the world's leading brands, including the iconic Amazon smile logo and McDonald's new visual identity. She worked her way to serve as CEO of Derner Duckworth, and in 2014, creative giant Publicis acquired the firm. It's with great pride and admiration, I introduce my friend, Joanne Chan. Joanne, welcome to Our Voices.
2: Thank you so much. What a lovely introduction. Thank you, Molly. I am so happy to be here and very honored that you invited me to be on your show.
1: Thank you. It is really my privilege and I'm grateful for you making the time out of your very, very, very busy day. Um, Joanne, working in fancy art galleries on famous brands, it sounds very dreamy, mm-hmm. and uh, maybe some days you pinch yourself with all that you've created. You know, as listeners know, meaningful success takes work, sometimes not so pretty, Uh, and I appreciate you making time and giving listeners a chance to get to know you and the journey you've been on thus far.
2: Thanks. Yeah, I'm, I'm very open and willing to answer any personal and professional questions about my journey. We can get really real, and I'm comfortable getting vulnerable because I know you offer a safe space. So let's get into it.
1: Yes, please. Please. Let's go there. (laughs) Early childhood. First memory.
2: Tell me a little bit about growing up. Well, I'm a first generation immigrant. My parents emigrated to the US from Hong Kong when I was only seven months old. And to put that into context, it was only three years after the full repeal of the Chinese Exclusion Act. After a short stay in Vermont where my sister was born, we moved to Rochester where we met. And I grew up in a suburb of Rochester, not not the same one as Molly's, but a different one, that was 85% Jewish. And I wanted to be like all of my friends. I even went to Hebrew school for a while. Um, But my sister and I were the only Asian kids in our elementary and middle schools. And then I believe there was one, perhaps Vietnamese boy who joined us in high school. Um, And we spoke Chinese at home, we ate with chopsticks and Chinese food every night. And I remember bringing my lunch to school and feeling really out of place and self-conscious because all the other kids had peanut butter and jelly or bologna sandwiches, and I wanted to be just like them. And sometimes, you know, we were bullied at school, but we were, for the most part, socially accepted in our community. However, we experienced a lot of racism in downtown Rochester, for example, when we would go to hockey games or go out to dinner. And I'll never forget the first time I heard someone call us chinks and my dad rushed us into the car and it was such a jarring experience. But um, what helped was that my father founded the Rochester Chinese Association and we started to meet so many Chinese families from other suburbs, like your family, but it was it was really interesting because we, we sort of had this dual upbringing, this dual life. In my dad's profession as a surgeon, he was the only Chinese doctor at his hospital. And in our schools, my sister and I were the only Chinese kids. But then on weekends, we would get together with all of our family's Chinese friends. So I would say we assimilated pretty well, but not without struggles. Uh, and our parents talked all the time about our family history. And we traveled so much to Asia that my sister and I both identify very strongly as Chinese Americans and we're proud of our heritage.
1: That's so wonderful. I, I have such fond memories of us being little together. Me too. Yeah, me really, too. I, I really do. And I associate <laughs> like, we would have peanut butter sandwiches but the idea of peanut butter and jelly was just the grossest thing to me. Okay, like, <laughs> I really, I, to this day, I can't. <laughs> and so there's a lunch story, my sister, my mother would pack these great lunches and we didn't know this, but she would go, she was kind of bartering her lunch. I
2: did the it was same. So- I would trade because I would bring soy sauce, chicken and egg rolls and I would get stuff from other kids. Cause they'd be like, wow, that's really cool. <laughs> do you, um, do you have, so I'll just say, I remember
1: only using yellow crayon to ever draw stick figures and girls. Like I would never use a black crayon. And I don't remember being traumatized, but I remember really deeply wanting to fit in. And I'm wondering, did you feel that? I mean, what was that like for you?
2: Oh, I always felt that. I felt I didn't want to speak Chinese with my parents in front of um, my friends. Uh, I wanted to just be like everyone else. You know, that's why I went to Hebrew school and I wanted to be like all my white friends. I was surrounded by them. Uh, except for my Chinese friends that I saw on the weekends occasionally. But for the most part, I remember really trying to fit in and feeling very self-conscious about my color. Um, And I I did have very good friends. We had a very supportive environment in the community in Brighton, the suburb where we grew up. But I remember very much feeling like the other because I just didn't see in our day-to-day school or day-to-day goings-on, I didn't see a lot of other people like me. You know, you
1: mentioned the bullying, and I'm also wondering from a teacher standpoint, did you feel that you were
2: treated differently or not at all? I, d- I don't recall that, no. I, I don't recall. I don't feel like I was ever held back or passed over or that my my hand was up and I didn't get called on or, or something like that. Uh, I didn't feel that way at all, so I think we were fortunate in that regard. That's great. Do you um,
1: – I, I remember in our family at least, you know, we were – We were smart enough kids. And so it was just far easier to come home with an A than to suffer the wrath of not. And I'm just wondering how much your parents pushed you or not. You know, people hear of these tiger mom sort of situations that I did not experience that. And did your parents, were they pretty, was it a pretty high bar? Uh, How did you feel about how they pushed you or
2: not? It was so high, but like you and your sisters, I think it was just experience expected. So they didn't really have to push us and say, do your homework, do your homework. But we were darn sure trying to overachieve because that was what was expected. So I would say there were super high expectations from our parents. And like most Chinese kids, we were expected to do really well in school. There were definitely suggestions to consider going into medicine or law. I think we were expected to play tennis and play at least one musical instrument, just like I know you and your sisters did. (laughs) And in that sense, our parents totally fit that stereotype of Chinese parents and their expectations. But both of my parents encouraged my sister Elle and I to follow our interests. And neither of us ended up as a doctor or a lawyer. In fact, we are both in creative fields. And I think it's because our parents always said, do what makes you happy, which is actually more progressive than the stereotypical Chinese parent, right? Um, they, they they, They just didn't push us that way. But there definitely was that sort of underlying very, very high expectations for all
1: of us. Yeah. yeah I, well, clearly, you have you outperformed. Sure <laughs> yes, I can relate. And you have you outperformed, I have to say, very sadly, because this whole, I think this notion of you're either a doctor or a dentist or, or engineer. And my yeah, mother was yeah. so, she could not, and I, I had to very sternly, close to yelling, say to my mother, and I remember this very clearly, Mother, I yeah. am not going to be a doctor or right. dentist. And I just remember right. I felt so bad, but I felt like, oh, my God, this you can't keep saying this to me. I don't right. want to do that. Totally. Um, how Talk about the, the college decisions. And it's so great that you have flourished with your creativity. And um, I'm, I'm interested how that, because I lost track of you a bit during school, I think.
2: Yeah, so... I applied. I had no idea what I wanted to study. I just knew I had to get into good schools. I think I applied to 10 colleges and universities. I think I got into nine and I had no idea what to do. My parents gave me no direction whatsoever. Not like these days where I'm so we're so involved in our daughter's uh, education and choices and whatnot. Um, my parents were not involved at all. They didn't help me with my <laughs> applications. They just expected us to figure it out, you know? So I went to my college counselor and I said, Where, which of these schools should I go to? Which of these nine? And she said, Wellesley. And she was just a really big supporter of um, all women's colleges and felt that I could really excel there. And I'm so glad that I, I chose that. And then I found my path through the love of art. My mom's an artist, so I studied art history and I double majored in art history and psychology and then went on to New York you know, and, um, worked in the art world.
1: So, so just talk about, cause that's not, first of all, just kind of magically landing in New York and finding your way and in a field that, you know, a lot of folks want to get into. Um, so just talk about how you've kind of learned to like be, take initiative, work your way mm-hmm. in there. Those things I know don't just happen. You know, People don't just snap their fingers and, oh, look at you're working in this glamorous place. Yeah,
2: it was really hard. My first job, I was so lucky, was at the Guggenheim Museum, and I'd applied to all these galleries. I'd done an internship my junior summer at a very well-known gallery called Marlborough Gallery, um, but I, they didn't offer me a full-time job. So I applied to some galleries, and then used my alumni network. Um, and it turns out that one of the curators at the Guggenheim went to Wellesley. So I, of course, that was before email, I rang her up and left a message for her. And that pushed my resume that I'd sent her up to the top of her pile. And they offered me a job. So I just used those connections. I was, you know, I advocated for myself, I was very confident, even though I had no idea what I was doing. Um, and, and I got lucky. I got really lucky, and I got a great first job at the Guggenheim.
1: You were prepared to be lucky. Talk to me about this. There's a sense of self-confidence that you you, you you had at that point in time. Was that always in you? Did you ever find that you were maybe not playing so big, and all of a sudden you gave yourself permission to? Because I think that's kind of an A or B switch. You know, People either are like, I can do this, I'll figure it out, or they're a little more hesitant.
2: I think I've always... Been confident because my parents were so encouraging and they didn't, like parents these days, they didn't pave the way for us. They didn't get up, you know, make sure obstacles were out of the way. They let us bump up against things and fix them ourselves. And I think both my sister and I have a similar level of confidence, but at the same time, self awareness and humility. So uh, there have been plenty of times that I've misstepped. There have been plenty of times where I was not the smartest person in the room and I definitely felt it, but I definitely felt coming out of college, at least if it's, if we're talking about that part of my journey, that I, that sort of the world was my oyster and I could try to do anything. I definitely felt that sort of optimism at that time.
1: For folks who, who don't know the gallery life, and I actually don't, Share with us what is, you know, a, a student or a new, uh, someone new to the workforce in a job like that? What are you doing?
2: You're basically an assistant and you're trying to learn the ropes. You're making no money, but you're probably very wide eyed and excited about meeting famous artists, going to gallery openings, but you're basically an assistant and you're at the bottom of the rung. Um, and and that's okay, because, you know, any entry level job, you want to just be learning the ropes. So I I definitely, um, you know, found what I liked to do. And then I kept progressing through and saw, you know, people who were above me and started thinking about what I wanted to do and whether or not I wanted to follow in their footsteps.
1: Did you have strong mentors who was guiding you, if anyone, in thinking about what could be next?
2: At the Guggenheim, I did have a strong mentor. The director. I was the assistant to the director, but he had a he had a really professional, uh, much older career secretary. And that I was kind of like his, the equivalent of like a, a bag man, you know, for the president. So he was the, this fancy director and I was there carrying his bags, getting his dry cleaning, you know, doing everything. But it was just amazing because he, t- he took me everywhere. I went to Japan, you know, and to, to help him strike a deal with a major sponsor. And I was doing all of these amazing things in New York. And what was interesting is when I got into graduate school, because I realized I wanted to uh, pursue a, a career in curatorial work. I knew I had to get um, a master's in art history. I got into NYU, and this was a year after I worked as his assistant. And I went into his office to resign and told him that I got this job. I mean, that I got this, uh, that I was accepted to NYU into the program. And he said, I knew you wouldn't last long here, which was a supportive thing to say. And he said, but do you wanna somehow stay in any capacity? And I said, yeah, but I work like 60 hours for you. I can't do that and attend school full-time. And he's like, well, what do you want to do? And I said, I want to work as an assistant in the curatorial department. And he said, okay. And he created a job for me and he created a halftime, 20 an hour week job. And then I went to school full-time and did a full load um, for my master's. And that was amazing. So he was a mentor. He believed in me and made space for me to do what I wanted to do.
1: That is amazing that when asked, Joanne, you had an answer.
2: Oh yeah, I knew exactly what I wanted to do. You knew exactly <laughs>
1: what I wanted to do. You go, you go, girl. So, so, how was it working? So was it just nonstop work in school? It sounds like that's crazy load.
2: Yeah, that was pretty crazy. It it was it was tough. Um, uh, that's all I did. I spent all my time at the museum or at school or in my tiny shoebox apartment uh, studying. So yeah, and what was, was what was life in New York City like for you? Oh, it was so fun at that time because I was young. You know, I, I just, I just had so much fun and I had a lot of friends and it was just, it was really early days. New York was a great place to be in the nineties in your twenties, but I have to say, you know, it it got old after a little while because there's very little money in the nonprofit art world and also in the for-profit art world when you're starting out kind of at the bottom rung. So it was I got into debt and it was debt that drove me to look for a career change Um, but I had so much love for the arts that I didn't have a different true north at the time because that's what I wanted to do but I couldn't afford it anymore and I felt so bad because my parents were helping to support me and I didn't want that around my neck anymore so so, I systematically went about finding my next career again using the Wellesley Alumni Network. I interviewed dozens of my uh, alma mater from uh, of alumni from my alma mater from all different careers and industries. I talked to like broadcast television presenters, to lawyers, to people in finance, insurance, medicine. I considered anything and had these great conversations with women and basically asked them three questions What do you do? how did you get there? And do you like it? And I ended up narrowing my search to advertising and design because I realized I could still work with creative people, but in the commercial sense through marketing products and brands. And now, oh my goodness, 23 years later, I still love what I do.
1: You are such a rock star. What a system to go through. I could just see you like so organized <laughs> notepad list. This yeah. is the date I call. This is the follow up. What do you do? How'd you get there? Do you like it? You go, girl. So, okay. So, how is it? The, I mean, did you have a number of opportunities? Just
2: tell t- talk to us how you ended up uh, where you are. Yeah. So, I applied to, um, the best ad agency at the time could be Silverstein and Partners in San Francisco, where I had already moved to work for the Ansel Adams Center and be closer to my sister. And, and then I heard through a designer who was doing pro bono work for us at the Ansel Adams Center, that his boss, David Turner of Turner Duckworth was looking. So he was an intern at Turner Duckworth. And he said, my boss is looking for someone to basically run his company and do the client side. Are you interested? And I'm like, yeah, sure. But I didn't know anything about design. Um, I also didn't know anything about advertising. But I, I definitely positioned what I had done in the museum world and said I could parlay all of these skills. So, for example, in the museum world at Ansel Adams, I created exhibitions. I um, raised money to fund the exhibitions. I um, created catalogue raisonnées for the traveling shows and, you know, printed printed books. And so I was project managing. So, I create, I kind of parlayed all of that work, working with creatives, um, doing project management, and kind of positioned that I could do that, of course, for designers and, and advertising creatives as well. So, that's how I kind of went in and pitched myself to Goodby and also to Turner Duckworth. And I end up getting both offers. And it was the partner at Goodby Silverstein that I have to thank, and I have, by the way, since, um, because he offered me a job on the entry-level job. And again, keep in mind, I had already been working for seven years, and he offered me an entry-level job to work at Goodby on the Izuzu Trooper account. And, and then David Turner offered me a job to be employee number two. And I called this guy, I will name him Robert Riccardi, and I asked him what I should do. And he said, Joanne, I think you should, I think you should take the job with David Turner because I've heard about him I think he's doing good work and he's talented. And I tell you, you've already been working for seven years and you're going to be frustrated coming in as an assistant account executive. So go work at Turner Duckworth. And then after a couple of years, you will learn the ropes about the creative industry. And then you can come work at Goodby and come at a a higher level. And I never look back. (laughs) (laughs) We love
1: Robert. Oh my God. We love him.
2: Yes, totally.
1: That is so crazy. I just want to pause for listeners. So, you look at your background and you're like, wow, what have I done? And you saw what what you've done and were able to package it in a way to be very compelling. And I think lots of times folks will perhaps not give themselves the credit and just kudos to you for like, game on. Absolutely, I can do this. Look at how completely (laughs) relevant my past. Totally, I can do this. I love it. Um, Okay. Step back a bit. Talk about Female and I mean creatives, I would think is very open. But any experiences of bias of any sort, you know, or working through those kinds of sensitive situations.
2: So, yeah, I mean i I didn't experience it within Turner Duckworth. David was always such a great mentor and very very encouraging. Um, in the Bay Area at the time. I would say that in most meetings, when we would meet, usually on the peninsula with tech tech companies, I was always pretty much the, the only woman in the room. But I was never the only Asian in the room, which is interesting because I didn't feel as much like the other as I did when I was in New York working in the art world, in the museum world. There were very, very there were no Asians, but here in the Bay Area, and especially meeting with tech companies, I was definitely not the only Asian in the room. So in terms of being a person of color, I didn't feel marginalized. In terms of being a woman, I definitely felt like I had to try harder because of my gender.
1: Do you have any particular instances of people underestimating you or, you know, in your eyes, just not you know, being treated equally. I'm just wondering how explicit those experiences were for you. You know,
2: I, I think I've been really lucky because I've had such great mentors who really believed in me. And David Turner was an incredible mentor for 20 years. So he believed in me, but um, for sure I, I had meetings when I was working at the Guggenheim where I was sort of dismissed by, you know a Japanese businessman and asked to stand behind my boss. Um, I have definitely had experiences where I was t- sort of disregarded as the note taker, you know, in a in a big tech meeting in a boardroom when we were uh, presenting to 3Com or Palm or something like, you know, big, big tech companies. But I always had a mentor who was trying to promote me. But, but having said that, I misstepped many, many times. And I definitely suffered from imposter syndrome. And I definitely felt like, I had to try harder to be heard because I was a woman. I am a woman. <laughs> yeah, you still are. Same about. Am, yeah. Say more
1: about the imposter syndrome.
2: Well, I mean, there was this one time I remember. So, so keep in mind that I was employee number two, right? So I was starting over again after seven years, and after having experienced a period where I could speak pretty knowledgeably about the artwork that I you know, I was working with. And then I had, I kind of backtracked and I really was too green to speak really knowledgeably about design strategy and, you know, what we were doing for these companies early on when I first got the job. Right. So I was, there was this one time I was really focused on finding an opening to say something just to (laughs) open my mouth in a meeting. And right. So, but in being so focused on thinking about what I wanted to say, I didn't realize that I'd sort of been tuning out the conversation in the room because of it. So, and this was at a meeting, actually I think it was 3 So when I finally did speak, right after I spoke, everyone froze because it turns out what I said was something that someone in the room had just said. And I had clearly not been paying attention because I was so nervous. So that was a fail. And David kindly pivoted and said, what I think Joanne meant was, and he you know, he's helped save me, but it was, it was totally mortifying. But I guess, I guess my learning from that and my advice to people would be, always be an active listener. Um, and sometimes, if, especially if you're starting off early in a career, if you don't have something meaningful and re- relevant to say, don't say anything at all. But at the same time, it's always good to stretch and do like I did, which is step outside one's comfort zone, because you only learn by taking those leaps, right? Um, it's just—it's just good. I think it helps to have mentors who support and catch you when you fall, because everyone falls, right? Everyone stumbles, and we need supportive people to help us uh, and be gracious when we stumble.
1: Yeah, that's that's fabulous, and I I, I can feel the mortification. <laughs>
2: Oh God! It was. I, I had many. I had many times like that, especially in the first few years when I was just learning the ropes. Because I, I had the the confidence from working for seven years in a different field, but I didn't have the knowledge.
1: <laughs> well, in hindsight, now you know, kind of in this restart, is there anything or uh, other than you know maybe not trying to be so intently speaking, yeah. but yeah, how might you have changed those first few years in terms of coming up to speed? learning, and or creating credibility. Just curious. Well,
2: it's what I did do in, in the end, which, which was um, I just, I was a sponge. I just absorbed so much. I studied. I went to conferences, some, some that David paid for, some that I paid for myself. I did a lot of prep for meetings. I made sure I knew what I was talking about. And if I didn't, I resorted to asking good questions. And my mantra was always, know your material. So I would just really, really study up, and I would learn from our clients, uh, and I would just absorb. So I think that was my learning, and that's what I did practice, you know, after a couple of stumbles. I just realized I really got to study up here, (laughs) you know, because I did, I had two years in a master's program, you know, seven years at the Guggenheim, you know, of course, of course, I didn't know what I was doing, and I had to (laughs) learn a new career. So I just realized, okay, back to the book. So it wasn't literally back to the books, but it was definitely a learning period. And there was a, you know, a lot of humility there, but, but it was great. It was exciting because I'm such, I'm a naturally curious person. So I've got to learn a lot of new things and apply them.
1: That's wonderful. So now you've built this thing and you're running it. So just take us through the, you know, cause that's, that's crazy to be employee number two and the head of it. And then you
2: sold the thing. So just take us through the, that wild ride. Well, that was, so I joined Turner Duckworth in 97 and Publicis acquired us in 2014. So there was a lot of time in between, right? So I slowly built our business practice and, you know, David was doing all the designing. I was doing all the account management, client management, and the business side of it. We uh, specialized in packaging design, but we eventually started kind of repositioning our case studies to position ourselves as a visual visual identity design agency. Um, and then that helped us grow our business significantly. And then we had some key milestone client clients like Coca-Cola and Levi's and Samsung and Amazon, of course, that put us on the map. And so as, as I grew, I grew our business and I grew my department. And so I, you know, slowly got more and more responsibility and David continued championing me and my career. And, you know, I got promoted. And so, you know, I went from account manager to account director and like the normal progression, eventually COO and um, and now I'm CEO, but it was, it was over a long time. And I think more traditionally, people move uh, across to different agencies, right? In order to move up. I think I'm very fortunate that I was able to do this at one place. Um, because most people have to in order to get a promotion, they often have to go somewhere else. And I'm very fortunate that David like saw the promise in me and my and acknowledge my achievements at every stage and then would promote me and give me more support.
1: It's so spectacular! I want to meet him. That's incredible. Talk. I don't know a lot about the creative process, but you're pitching to these big companies. And just share with listeners what does it take? What is the what is the creative and design process that you can, you know, that the team gets together and then somehow, you know, some cool thing gets presented to Coca Cola? Because that's, you know, for me, that's that's very foreign.
2: Yeah, I mean, part of it is demystifying the process for our clients, and and you know, not not patenting or trademarking the process, not trying to make it all kind of um, secretive. You know, we talk in really plain language and talk to them and try to get at the essence of what they're trying to communicate about their brands. And then we, I mean, there is some level of magic that happens in that I'm not a creative person myself, right? I facilitate creative. So, our, our our people are very very talented, and they do um, they create design in a certain way. There's sort of this creative collaboration and all this, and also very healthy competitiveness to it because they're all trying to get a first stage idea into a first stage design presentation. Um, but it's about getting to know our clients. It's about communicating. You know what you do. It's say it skillfully, like asking hard questions understanding where our clients are coming from, what they're trying to communicate. And then our job is to translate that into something meaningful that creates an emotional connection with their customers. And that can be enduring because what we do is we create brand assets that last for decades. Like the Amazon logo is 21 years old this year. Um, So we're not doing short-term campaigns like advertising agencies. So we're really trying to understand what is at the core of the brand, what do they want to communicate? And what we create are basically enduring fixed assets and also flexible systems. And it's all visual so that they can flex and grow as companies.
1: Wow, that is so cool. So I would imagine that creative types have this, you know, there's they're some secret sauce to them. So, what have you found is essential in, if you will, leading, managing, facilitating creatives so that you get? you know, a, a beautiful product as opposed to something that is very psycho and at odds <laughs> with different folks. Yeah, members. I mean,
2: it's it's having a very clear brief. So making sure, again, the communication communication is clear what the client wants to achieve and then making sure everyone stays on brief. Um, and we actually started to, initially when we first started all our, our briefs were just words. They were just written pages and pages. And what we started to do was translate those briefs into visual briefs for our designers, because it was harder for designers to make that leap from words to, you know, mental, witty genius ideas that translated into visuals. So um, so so that's one element of it that sort of unlocked things for us. In terms of like how I communicate with creatives, I have to I've in the in my past I've met a so many people have come and gone and stayed at Turner Duckworth. And I would say that um, creatives are probably a bit more sensitive. And so, uh, and the account side, we're more business oriented and we want to stick to deadlines and we want to tick things off our list. And creatives are much less linear and much less about crossing things off their list. So it's about kind of coming to the table and acknowledging different work styles and different, um, I don't know, you know, what drives, what drives people is different. And yet we are having to collaborate to come up with a work product for the client. And so that's, that's always been an an interesting aspect of of my job, which I love.
1: What, what do you, what do you love most about your job right now?
2: Well, now I'm in a very different role because it's about kind of shaping the future of the company, um, you know, making sure we're staying on track. We've, I, I love taking care of our people and um, preserving our culture, which is very unique. And, and and a lot of what I do is also responding to things that happen externally. So in 2020, of course, we had COVID, but we also had Black Lives Matter matters. And how do we respond to that? And uh, in the UK, we had Brexit. And, you know, there's so many different things that we as leaders have to respond to because, things happen in the world and and those things affect our people and how they feel both about their personal lives and about their work lives. So it's finding a way to ensure that work is a safe space for them um, and that we're addressing things that are happening happening externally as well, but through a lens of what we do. Because um, what we don't want to do is is fall into optical allyship and just look like we're doing something when we're not actually doing something about the problems.
1: Yeah, I love that authenticity and the safe space. Obviously, this whole say it's mm-hmm. skillfully—you have to have that. Um, right. And culture is
2: is the secret sauce. So, how would you describe the the Turner Duckworth uh, culture? We call ourselves duckies, and it's very—it's a—it's like a family. Um, we're a bunch of weirdos, and there's you know there's a place for anybody. Um, there's definitely a, a drive for design excellence, creative excellence, and what we do and that shared sort of common goal. Um, we are. We do have a sort of mission statement that we always do the best work for every client on every project, no matter what, no skeletons in the closet. We don't take on work just for the money. Um, we're always wanting to make sure that we can make a difference. Um, but I would say the culture is just very open. I mean, we do have hierarchy, but I would say people to people, it's very flat in the sense that, you know, I can have a conversation with a junior designer and they will probably feel pretty comfortable talking to me um, because we just encourage fun. (laughs) We encourage enjoyment and joy in what we do because otherwise, you know, what good is that if it's not fun?
1: Yeah, I love it. Have you had to, have you had folks who haven't been uh, good culture fits and had to move them out?
2: Sure. I mean, there have been people who just haven't performed um, against the roles and responsibilities they were hired for. Um, but we invest a lot in our people. So there's over 50% of our executive creative directors and creative directors uh, have been with us for over 10 years. And I'm probably one of, I would say four or five people who've been with the company for 20 years. Wow. That's pretty significant.
1: Yeah. That's awesome. And you can't, you can't buy you can't buy that, at all. Right. Talk a bit about the um, the sale and the transaction part. Was it just an obvious thing to do? Was that came out of the blue? Yeah.
2: That wasn't my decision because David and uh, David Turner and Bruce Duckworth were the owners, so it was their decision. But I, you know, obviously I helped um, with all the due diligence work that had to happen before it, and then and then I managed the integration. That was tough because we were a tiny independent company, small and mighty. And we were being acquired by Publicis, which is 80,000 employees globally and in hundreds of countries. And it was definitely a blow to our system. Um, but the good thing is, during the earnout period, which was five years, we were given some protection where we were allowed uh, under Leo Burnett Network. Um, which is the agency that we were acquired under in North America, we were allowed to sort of step our integration. And I have great mentors at Leo Burnett um, who have helped us through that process. So I I still think part of what I do as CEO is make sure that we are good partners within Publicis but also make sure that we still stand somewhat independently, so that our culture is still unique to Turner, Turner Duckworth, and we still, you know, double down on what we do best, which is more of a specialized agency.
1: That's awesome. That's awesome. Kudos for you to navigate the inter- integration. You know, having done a little of that myself, <laughs> that mm-hmm. is not yeah. the easiest thing to do, and it's a make or break for your people, and they're lucky for your. Uh, your commitment and and staying true to what's been your secret sauce. Let's let's switch gears a bit, the family life. And, you know, it just sounds like you've been super hard charging. You've been, you know, just completely committed. Um, How have you worked in marriage, China? You know, what's Mm -hmm. it like to be a mom and and head head up a company?
2: Yeah, I would not have been able to do what I've done in the last 20 years without, my husband Av and I met in 1996, and we married in 2001. So he was with me during this transition when I went from the Ansel Adams Center to Turner Duckworth. And um, and he had a very you know long career, also in advertising. Actually, he was a producer. Um, But there came a point at which we realized that he really didn't like what he was doing. And I loved my new career at Turner Duckworth. And when we started to think about having kids, um, we had that kind of tough decision. And I actually encouraged him to try to be a stay-at-home dad, even though that was kind of going against how he was brought up and what his kind of inclination was at the time um but I loved what I was doing and he didn't like what he was doing so when our daughter China was born um we decided that he would give it a go and that he could always you know go back to work if necessary we would get a nanny and you know we'd do that but we thought if we could swing it that it would be great if one of us you know could be the primary caregiver to our daughter and he's amazing and he definitely had to go through a lot of you know um challenges being a dad in a moms group because there at the time 15 years ago there just weren't that many dads in moms groups now it's like half dads probably <laughs> um, but but at the time it wasn't as as easy i'd say and he was just so supportive of my career he has always been there and he understands because he worked in a similar industry i can talk to him about anything and he's just always been a feminist (laughs) so he's just he's always been such a great supporter of me and because i know he's always taking care of our daughter and taking care of everything at home i'm able to focus on work when i'm when i'm at work and i don't have to worry about anything else so i mean my he he is i guess he he is behind my success completely
1: so great that you've nurtured both and uh i'm curious is is your daughter into the creative? How would you, from what you're seeing, uh, where do you think she might head, if you have any idea?
2: Yeah, so she and I really were very close, even though obviously, you know, I... I don't spend as much time with her as my husband does, but uh, you know, on weekends and evenings and everything, we're very close. She wants to she wants to run a design agency when she grows up. So she, you know, she's told me that she wants to be like mom. I don't know how literal she means, but she means about that. But, but she is an excellent artist. And um, but what I'm really happy to see is that she sort of found her own path. She's very good at maths and science, and she's very very interested in that as her kind of academic interest so we'll see where that goes and art is now sort of a hobby for her which i think is great um and she's kind of really well rounded but she she definitely respects you know my work and she wants to be a working professional and i have no idea you know what is in store for her but i i know that she'll find her path that
1: is so lovely that she would tell you that she's yeah. not really knowing what that is, but that is like the most adorable thing ever. Like, I just want yeah. to be like my mom. It was very cute. Oh my God. God. Very I love cute. it. I love it. <laughs> um, so switching gears, you know, we, um, this with COVID um, you know, there's been, very sad. You know, my, my mother and father have talked about some of the anti-Asian sentiment that they felt around COVID. And, you know, I, I read something President Biden really had to elevate trying to disavow racism and xenophobia uh, toward Asian Americans. Um, so I would just love your thought, thoughts for listeners and how mm-hmm. they might counter bias of any form, ethnic, gender, you know. Um, and you know, the whole theme is how can all of us be more a part of the solution around equity, around inclusion
2: sure well i mean that's a loaded question i mean there's I, last year not just covid and the anti asian racism but um what happened around george floyd i think opened our eyes even more but you know so so i'll just I'll, i want to say something on that first that you know systemic racism and mass incarceration of black people in the us requires all of us to be educated on the topics and not only to support as allies to be but to be a part of the solution um, and the in- inequities around all marginalized people in the workplace, no matter the industry and including the design industry definitely need to be, addressed. And I think change comes from within. So, at our agency, I head up a DE&I task force, and I have a number of initiatives that we've put into place to promote greater diversity, to do outreach into underserved and underrepresented communities. We have a high school education program, a college program, a scholarship for Black designers, and we're doing pro bono work for a nonprofit advocacy organization that's doing incredible work in the New York area. So, but it, it related to the anti-Asian, um, the terrible stuff that's going on, I'm feeling really disheartened to be honest and worried about the state of our country because people with racist leanings are more emboldened. They are not hiding in the shadows. They, They have been and still are with even more frequency pushing right-wing xenophobic agendas and it troubles me greatly. You know, the fact that elderly Chinese people are being killed in the streets of San Francisco is unacceptable, but not more unacceptable than what's been happening to predominantly Black men and women for hundreds of years. So the system is broken, but there's also a huge problem with alternative media. You know, after number 45, I don't want to say his name, called it the the China virus, um, alternative media picked that up. And we can shout as loudly as we can, but people who are in positions of power or people who believe in right-wing agenda that's driven by white privilege, they're not listening to us. So I think social activism is important. And I think we can change by practicing as much inclusion and empowerment of marginalized people um, as we can. And I think we can change by electing officials who support social justice and reform And we can change by not giving up. I mean, we're continuing the civil rights movement of the 60s, it's now 60 years later. Literally and figuratively, I think we just need to keep on marching.
1: Wonderfully said, I have a heavy heart at times and I am optimistic that I think enough folks are willing um, Mm -hmm. to go there and to start to have conversations and sometimes they're not easy. And right. they don't need to be done perfectly. Um, and I applaud you, know, you folks leaning into the things that you do well in your strike zone in ways to mm-hmm. support the community, you know, whether that's pro bono or supporting mm-hmm. your employees. And I think that's just a great role model, Joanne. So thank you for, um, and I know you were thoughtful about that. So I appreciate that you're leading, leading the way with that. Um, you know, We might as well segue because I always love to ask my guests there say it skillfully challenged? Because I think oftentimes it seems to people that the head honchos never have any struggling with the conversations or what have you. So is there a personal or professional uh, conversation or situation that I might help you with? Uh,
2: I feel like I've done so much work to be able to have uncomfortable conversations um, over my career that I don't have anything that I can think of right now that's um, relevant to what's what I'm going through, but I can give you an example of something that happened to me. <laughs> love it, I would love it. So um, I can talk about my manager at Turner Duck with David Turner. He uh, he had to give me very difficult feedback early in my career about you know like 22 years ago, and he tried several times over many many months. Um, and what he was trying to tell me was that. He wanted me to enjoy my job more because early in my career, uh, you know, as I said, in design, I was at a disadvantage because I was starting all over again. And I was a New York City transplant in the Bay Area. I was used to New York ways of working, you know, straight to the point, barking orders, very officious and serious. And I took, I sort of took the fun out of work for him. And, but I didn't realize that. And he finally was able to get through to me but you know, he was he, uh, several times. As I said, he tried to kind of give me a steer, like maybe I can be a little nicer to our clients, or maybe I can not slam the phone down. I mean, there were so many things I remember him trying to say, but it wasn't really getting to me until he finally said that he was able to get through to me by telling him how I made him feel. That when I would enter his office, just to give you an example, with a really serious, almost angry face because it was my serious business face that I thought I had to have, that I had to wear, he would get anxiety because he thought something was wrong. But actually, most of the time, I was coming in to tell him that there was a problem, but that I had fixed it. And, and he wasn't making you know a sexist comment here to smile more, which I have been told in the past by rude you know male strangers, um, but not by anyone I've ever worked with. He was making a genuine plea to say, your demeanor stresses me out and it makes me anxious. And when I understood that, it sort of got to my heart because, of course, I was motivated to change my work style because I don't want to make anyone feel anxious. Um, so it took time, but it I started to embrace the idea that I could have more fun at work and that, you know, it wasn't like we were goofing off, but I I could smile and still be taken seriously. Like that was something I did not know, honestly, until he brought that up to me. <laughs> I
1: I love it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. And that's such a heart that the heart of saying skillfully is thinking about how do I feel? How does the other person feel? Because when you connect at that heart, emotional level, there's something that clicks in the intellect, in the brain.
2: It's exactly right. And it's not hard to change when, when it hits your heart. um, It's, it's not hard to find a common goal and a way to meet in the middle.
1: Yes. I want to just also lean into this for listeners because I, and I think for, especially for, for women and when you're starting out, there's this thing, I have to be serious to be taken seriously. I have to, you know, like, and I, um when I was early in, in IBM, thank God they would video us doing sales calls because you're supposed to ask questions or what have you. And thank God they did because Joanne, I looked at this video and because I was, you know, I was thinking I was being serious and really intently right. listening. And I swear to you, the words ax murderer, i am like, that girl looks like an ax murderer. And I, <laughs> I'm telling you, thank God it happened early. Because ever since then, it gave myself permission to, like I'm a naturally smiley person. You're a naturally, I'm you a naturally are, smiley person, right? You and,
2: are. You have such a great smile. And you smile when you talk and I can hear it in your voice.
1: So thanks. I just want to offer that to folks. I have a dear, dear friend, by the way, that, you know, it. You sometimes mm-hmm. created an opening. I said, you know, it would be, I think it'd be really awesome. You know, you can, you can smile a little bit more. And he looked at me and, you know, he kind of, he kind of owned it because it's so great. Cause when you smile, you feel better. And by the way, everyone else feels it too. So, you so know, that's our, our little, our little cheeky thing for today. Um, well, great. as we, that's great. we, as we wrap up a few, a few things here, um, What's the biggest compliment, Joanne? Someone has given you
2: the biggest compliment. The biggest compliment that someone's given me is telling me that my daughter is one of the kindest souls they've ever met. That that is the biggest compliment.
1: Oh, uh, oh, uh, heavy heart, big hug. <laughs> um, and uh, you know, you've shared a lot. I'm really, I've just been fascinated. I've loved it. Do you have a top takeaway just from hearing yourself? talk, or a conversation? Uh,
2: I guess no regrets and keep marching forward, sort of forward momentum and optimism. There's a lot going on in the world right now, right? And I think if we stand together and we just try to be our best selves every day, we just got to keep on marching forward, literally and figuratively. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I love it, I love it, and and lastly, what was sharing your story like for you?
2: It was great. I mean, I've been doing this more and more um, uh, within Publicist, We have, and actually, Leo Burnett started it. Um, my mentor now, my I report to Andrew Swinend, who's the CEO of Leo Burnett and the Creative uh, Collective of Agencies in North America, and he started. He sponsored this program called Conscious Minds, and we've been having leaders talk about themselves and their journeys, mental health issues, like all sorts of challenges. So I'm, I'm getting used to doing that more, but it definitely makes me feel vulnerable, but I think it's a good thing to do because I think it's good for, you know, people who work for us to know that we're human too. So it's a good thing to do. And thank you so much for having me on this show and for making it such a safe space to talk. It's well, been a pleasure. It's really
1: been my privilege, and um, you shine so brightly. I uh, could not be more proud. I, uh, if I can be helpful in any way to you, China, you know how to reach me. Uh, and Joanne, uh, keep on, keep on, and thank you for being part of the solution. You take good care.
2: Thank you. You too.
1: Ah, so amazing. As a reminder. There's more help for you to Say It Skillfully on my website, SayItSkillfully.com. And my passion project over the past few years took flight with my TEDx talk, Speaking the Truth at Work. I invite you to tune in to that. And my thought for the week, your relationship, that is how you navigate your interactions with yourself and others, makes or breaks your success. And that's a wrap. Thank you for tuning in. Please be part of the solution and kindly share this show. Amplify Joanne's voice. Reflect on your top takeaways and know I'm cheering for you to be who you are and say what needs to be said so that you and those around you have a shared reality, essential to make the best decisions, execute with speed, and achieve outstanding outcomes at work and in life. Homelessness is a problem that's more costly to ignore than solve. The U.S. spends $12 billion a year responding, but resources alone aren't enough. I'd like you to know there are cities and counties proving what does work. Partnering with Community Solutions, a nonprofit I'm on the board of, more than 80 communities around the country are succeeding in ending homelessness, beginning with chronic and veteran homelessness. They convene local leaders around data and are changing how they work and spend their resources. So homelessness becomes rare. More than half have already reduced the number of people experiencing chronic and veteran homelessness with commitment to get to zero. What can you do? Visit www.built40.org and see whether your community is engaged. Contact your mayor and ask, do you know the number of people experiencing homelessness in real time? Do you know every homeless person by name? What are you doing to drive measurable reductions in homelessness? Please challenge the fiction that says homelessness is an intractable problem.